This is The Rounds Table. Hello, Rounds Table listeners. Welcome back to another episode. This is your host today. My name is Paxton Bach, and I'm a general internist in Vancouver. We have a new guest to the show today. I'm pleased to welcome here Dr. Kate Kalitza, who's a general internist practices in Calgary. Welcome, Kate. Hello. Thanks for having me. I've been a fan of the podcast for a couple of years now, so it's exciting to be a guest and be part of it. Awesome. I'm very happy to have you on the show today, and we have a bit of a special episode today. I've alluded to this in past episodes, but I do practice general internal medicine. I also have training and practice addiction medicine as a part of my work. And Kate, you and I both did our addiction training together. We did, in Vancouver. So we are happy to bring a theme to the episode today, and we're going to talk about a couple addiction-related papers that I think are really relevant to the general internist and the general practitioner in general. So without further ado, we'll dive right into it. And Kate, tell us what paper you brought to the table today. Okay, so the paper that I wanted to discuss today was published in the New England Journal of Medicine on January 30th, so hot off the press. And it is a randomized trial of e-cigarettes versus nicotine replacement therapy, published by Peter Hadjack and colleagues. So this is a very hot topic these days. We're hearing a lot about e-cigarettes in the news, maybe not quite in this context. So tell us what is the bottom line to this article? So in this randomized trial of smokers who were interested in quitting, the use of e-cigarettes significantly increased one-year abstinence rates compared to those who were using traditional nicotine replacement therapy. So the rates of cessation amongst individuals using e-cigarettes was 18% compared to 9.9% in those using NRT. So that's a pretty dramatic reduction and pretty impressive. This kind of, this is new. This goes against some previous literature. So tell us, Kate, a little bit why you decided that this is something that was important for us to talk about today. Mm -hmm, For sure. So prior studies looking at e-cigarettes were not particularly encouraging and didn't, on the whole, demonstrate a significant benefit. But as you've mentioned, as addiction medicine physicians and general internists, I tend to gravitate towards research and publications that are related to substance use disorders and the treatment of people who use drugs. And nicotine, as we know, is a highly addictive substance. Furthermore, Nicotine addiction is, I think, often overlooked when we're making our issues lists and assessing patients, but it really represents a huge root cause for all of the conditions that we treat in GIM. So everything from COPD to malignancies, ischemic heart disease, at the core of all of those is often cigarette smoking. And a recent study that was just published in 2017 by the Conference Board of Canada found that, based on their estimations, one in five of all deaths in the country were related to cigarettes. So... E-cigarettes have generally been viewed as being safer than cigarettes because they contain fewer chemicals. But as I mentioned, there have been few really well-designed studies to examine their role in smoking cessation specifically. That is such a good setup. I totally agree with you. We really skate by this a lot on the ward. We talk about it briefly. We may suggest that somebody stops smoking, but in fact, in terms of actually delivering evidence-based care and medicine and treatments to patients in the ward, I can count on the fingers of one hand the time that I think that came up during my residency training. So I think that that really sets up this trial nicely as to why it's important. Let's get into the details then. Tell us a bit more specifically about what was the design of this study and where it took place. Where did it happen? Sure. So the design of the study, this was a two-group pragmatic, multi-center, individually randomized controlled trial. And it took place across three stop smoking services in the UK between May of 2015 and February of 2018. Okay, so a pragmatic trial. I feel like we're seeing a lot more of these these days. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we'll kind of go into what made this trial pragmatic, but I think it really adds a lot to how we can interpret and maybe incorporate some of the findings of this study. Yeah, I quite like reading them. So tell us then about specifically the patients that they enrolled. Who who were they studying? So they enrolled 886 adults, all of whom were interested in quitting smoking, which is important, and all of whom expressed no strong preference for either NRT or e-cigarettes. All of these individuals could not have currently been using either NRT or e-cigarettes, and the only other exclusion criteria was that they were not pregnant or breastfeeding. On average, participants were 41 years of age, and the split between male and female was roughly equal. They were smoking, on average, 15 cigarettes per day. Interestingly, nearly three-quarters had already tried NRT, and around 40% of participants had actually tried e-cigarettes at some point in the past. But overall, both groups were quite similar. Okay, so a group of people who were really actively looking to seek cessation, and it looks like a lot of them had tried in the past, presumably. That's right. Great, okay. And what was the specifically the intervention that they were comparing here? Mm-hmm. So this is kind of where some of the pragmatism of the trial comes in. So participants were assigned to receive either nicotine replacement products of their choice, which included combinations, switches, they could really use whatever NRT option appealed to them most. And they were actually encouraged to combine options, which is often what we'll do practically. So they could use patches, gums, lozenges, sprays, inhalers, kind of whatever they wanted for up to three months. Or in the e-cigarette group, they were provided with an e-cigarette starter pack, which included the actual refillable device, as well as one bottle of nicotine liquid. And the concentration was kind of a moderate to high nicotine concentration at 18 micrograms per mil. So that's interesting because, as you pointed out, this is sort of unusual. They were actually encouraged to try different types of liquids and even consider purchasing a different form of e-cigarette if needed, weren't they? Yeah, so they were really provided with that freedom to try different types of products within both groups. And the only requirement was that they signed a commitment not to use the other intervention for the first four weeks. Following that, they were allowed to cross over, try different things, you know, similarly to what a patient would do in the real world. Perfect. So again, that pragmatic aspect to the trial. Yeah. Um, They were randomized at their quit date, which is also important. So they were able to randomize everyone who moved forward from that point and actually utilized one of the interventions. And within the first four weeks of the trial, participants received, in addition to either pharmacologic intervention, weekly one-on-one behavioral support, as well as carbon monoxide monitoring. They didn't really describe in a lot of detail in the paper what that behavioral support involved, but it sounded as though it was fairly standardized across sites and between groups. Okay, perfect. So that sounds like a pretty reasonable design. And how were they monitoring the patients then and what were the primary outcomes that they were looking for? So they were monitoring the patients quite closely in the initial four to six weeks and then had a few touch points over the rest of the trial, which lasted 52 weeks. The primary outcome was one-year sustained abstinence, and that was defined as no more than five cigarettes after two weeks from their quit date, as well as an expired carbon monoxide level of less than eight parts per million at the end of the trial. Okay, so that's pretty important, and this is primarily a self-reported outcome then. Yeah, so although they included carbon monoxide measuring 
when possible, it's really only a reflection of cigarette use in the very recent past. Okay. And any worthwhile secondary outcomes that you wanted to point out? Yeah, I think so. So they included secondary outcomes of abstinence at other time points. They also looked at reduced rates of smoking by 50% or more, as well as prior seven-day abstinence and relapse. But I think the reduction in smoking is an important outcome. Furthermore, they looked at cravings to smoke, as well as respiratory symptoms. And this included shortness of breath, wheezing, cough, or phlegm, which I think is also an important outcome to consider. Perfect. Okay. So sounds like a very reasonable trial design. Again, a pretty pragmatic one. They've just taken these guys and given them the equipment they need and let them kind of go off to the races. So let's get into the results then. What uh, what did they find at 52 weeks? So when we look at the primary outcome, which again was one-year abstinence rates, they were 18% in the e-cigarette group and 9.9% in the nicotine replacement group. So that equals the number needed to treat for one additional individual person to have sustained abstinence of 12, which is pretty impressive. I would say so, yeah. Yeah, and particularly for a very pragmatic and straightforward design of this trial. The follow-up rates were quite reasonable. They were comparable to other studies in this field. So one-year follow-up was 79%. And importantly, those who were lost to follow-up were included in the analysis and they were considered not abstinent. So they did have an intention to treat analysis. In terms of other outcomes of note, even among those who did not achieve abstinence, more had a reduction in their smoking by at least 50% in the e-cigarette group. And as we'll discuss, people who used the e-cigarettes used them more often and for longer. So 80% of participants were still using their e-cigarettes at 52 weeks versus 9% of participants who were still using NRT for those who had achieved abstinence. Ah, so that's really interesting. So we'll talk about that later, perhaps. Yeah, I think it's an important caveat, perhaps, and consideration when interpreting the results as a whole. That being said, e-cigarettes were better at controlling cravings. They were better at controlling withdrawal symptoms. They had similar rates of adverse events to NRT. And for those who had cough or phlegm at baseline, more were symptom-free at the 52 weeks in the e-cigarette group than the NRT group. Hmm. So all in all, pretty positive results then for e-cigarettes. Now, you had mentioned in the setup to this trial, though, that patients were encouraged to consider switching groups, removing different products. Anything you wanted to highlight there? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that was a strength, in my opinion, of the study, making it more pragmatic. What they found was that there were a number of participants who, after that first four-week period, did essentially cross over and use other products. So 3% of the e-cigarette group used nicotine replacement, so not very many. But 20% in the nicotine replacement group actually used e-cigarettes. So there were more people moving towards e-cigarettes than the other way. And among those who had one-year abstinence, they did do a post-hoc analysis where they removed any of these crossover people, and they still found quite impressive results supporting e-cigarettes. So 17.7% had one-year abstinence for the e-cigarette group and 8% for NRT. So even though there was some movement back and forth, the results still came out in favor of initially having used e-cigarettes. So that's sort of a bit of a almost a protocol analysis that they did that still came out pretty dramatically in favor of e-cigarettes. So let's take a step back then and talk about the trial as a whole. Anything else that you wanted to mention? So I think overall to me, the 
improvement in abstinence rates, decreased use of cigarettes, patient satisfaction, and symptom improvement were all pretty exciting findings. And kind of as we alluded to, certainly stronger and a bit more promising than results that had been described in other trials looking at e-cigarettes. As I mentioned, I did like that this was a pretty pragmatic trial and that participants were encouraged to use different combinations, to try different interventions. I think that that reflects more accurately how we would typically approach smoking cessation therapy in the real world. But again, sort of as we mentioned, I think the high rate of continuing e-cigarette use at one year does need to be carefully considered. So again, at the end of 52 weeks, among individuals who had one-year abstinence, 80% were still using their e-cigarettes. I think that if that ongoing use does signal longer-term use, that this could be problematic because we don't really know yet what the long-term health risks are to e-cigarette use, particularly for certain types of flavored liquids and different kind of compositions that are available. So almost in essence, they've almost got two different outcomes here. In the NRT arm, it looks like the majority of people who were able to make it to the 52 weeks abstinent were nicotine-free, whereas the outcome in the e-cigarette arm was almost one of a swap of products and maybe could be considered kind of along a harm reduction direction. Yeah, yeah. So people tended to sort of, as you said, switch over to the e-cigarettes and use those instead. I also thought that it might be interesting in future trials to look at other clinical outcomes. I found it interesting and potentially telling that symptoms improved more in those using e-cigarettes, particularly for people with cough or phlegm. I did have concerns thinking about e-cigarettes about the risks of ongoing inhalation of foreign materials and still sort of smoking or vaping one substance versus another. But the individuals in the e-cigarette group did report a decrease in some of their symptoms, which I thought was interesting. Oh, I think that's that's worth noting. So my last question then before we kind of bring this home is, you had mentioned in the beginning that there was some previous work in this area that had had less positive results. So what was it about this trial compared to those other trials that you think really led to this positive result for e-cigarettes? So that's a great question. And I don't know that I have the right answer, but I think selection had a lot to do with it. As we mentioned, this was a group of individuals who were already quite motivated to quit smoking and had already tried other ways to quit smoking. So I think already this was a group of people who would have been more likely to quit smoking. Yeah, I think that's my understanding of it as well. As some of those trials were looking at people who weren't really seeking cessation. One of the other pieces to this that I think is worth noting is that some of the previous trials were looking at earlier generations of e-cigarettes that really didn't deliver all that high of levels of nicotine, where here they were using newer technology that was capable of delivering higher doses and they were encouraged to go and experiment. So really had the flexibility maybe to adjust the nicotine level to what they were seeking. Yeah, absolutely. And rates of satisfaction with the newer e-cigarettes are quite a lot higher. Additionally, these were refillable. So I think there were elements of the actual products people were using that helped. And then I think the pragmatic design as well, you know, helps to keep people engaged and, you know, potentially helped people to, you know, move towards smoking cessation as well. So thanks for bringing a really important article to the podcast today, Kate. Summarize it again for us in one line. What's the take-home message here? 
So I think for me, the take-home message is that among adult smokers who are interested in quitting smoking, e-cigarettes are a valuable option that should be discussed with patients and offered as another way to move towards their smoking cessation goals. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for bringing this article to the podcast, Kate. I think it's really an important thing for us to be informed about because I get asked about this a lot. And so this really will help me with counseling of patients. Yeah, absolutely. It comes up a lot. And I think it's nice to have a bit more information to discuss with patients when this comes up. And really anything that can help people quit smoking, I think, is a good tool to have. Perfect. I think this is really going to, if not change the way I practice, at least change the way I counsel patients. Because even outside of the addiction world, working in general medicine, patients ask about this all the time. So I think this is a really important article. So moving on then, we're going to go to the article which I'm bringing to the podcast today. So I am presenting an article that came out last year in the Annals of Internal Medicine entitled Medication for Opioid Use Disorder After Non-Fatal Opioid Overdose and Its Association with Mortality. This is an article that was published by Mark LaRochelle et al. And a shameless plug for the article, it was selected as one of the top five articles of the year at our Canadian Society of Addiction Medicine Conference. It's a great article. Yeah, it's very powerful and I'm happy to talk about it today. So I'm thrilled that you're talking about this article today for our kind of addiction medicine themed episode, since I think it's so important and hopefully something that will change practice certainly for general internists and across the board. So if you could summarize, what is the bottom line or the main message for this article? So the bottom line here is that in a retrospective cohort of people who experienced a non-fatal overdose, only 30% of them ended up receiving appropriate medications for the treatment of opioid use disorder in the year afterwards. But of those people, those who were initiated methadone or buprenorphine, it reduced their risk of opioid-related mortality by somewhere in the range of 50%. Yeah, that is spectacular. Like we don't have other interventions that can do that. So I feel like there's so many answers to this question, but why did you choose this article and why is it important to you? So uh, thanks for asking. It goes without saying that I feel strongly about the treatment of addictions in general. And certainly we're in the midst of an opioid crisis that's attracting all of our attention. Last year in Canada, there was over 4,000 opioid-related deaths, and there was greater than 70,000 of these in the U.S. So we're in the midst of the greatest public health crisis of the 21st century. We know that medications for the treatment of opioid use disorder save lives, but we also know that access to these medications is typically quite lacking. Non-fatal overdose is quite clearly a predictor of future overdose and of overdose deaths. But what happens in these patients when we intervene specifically and start them on an appropriate medication when we get this sort of warning flag of a non-fatal overdose? Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons that I think this trial is so important is, as you pointed out, it, it gives us some information about the outcomes if we utilize those opportunities where patients are presenting to healthcare and we have an opportunity to intervene. Um, so tell us a bit about the methods. Yeah, so the study design here was fairly straightforward, but there was quite a bit of statistical wizardry involved. So I'm going to gloss over a little bit of that. But the study design was a retrospective cohort study. The group is based out of Boston. So they use data from something called the Massachusetts Chapter 55 data set. So this includes patients who have health insurance, who are greater than 11 years old, and who lived in the state between 2011 and 2015. And they state that this covers more than 98% of Massachusetts residents over that time. This data set was also linked to seven other databases, so they get a very comprehensive view of people's travels through the Massachusetts healthcare system. 
Great. Okay. So it sounds like they had a lot of data to work with. Who were the patients included in the study? So for the purposes of this particular study, they included patients who were over 18 years old. They point out that in youth and adolescence, addiction treatment is quite different. So they selected adults who had had a non-fatal overdose between 2012 and 2014. And they were able to identify these patients either by DSM code in the hospital or through a documented ambulance encounter for an overdose. They did exclude patients with active cancers due to the competing possibility of death over that time, but otherwise all comers were incorporated. Okay, great. So very inclusive. And what was the primary question that they were asking? So really, they were asking in these patients who had had a non-fatal overdose, what were the effects of initiation of a medication for the treatment of opioid use disorder? So the intervention was exposure to any one of those of the three medications for opioid use disorder that are approved in the U.S. That's methadone, buprenorphine, or suboxone, or extended-release naltrexone, also called Vivitrol. And they gathered this data based on these linked data sets. They did take into account a number of confounders in their multivariable analyses, and these included things like age, sex, the use of prescription opioids or prescription benzos over that time, as well as a diagnosis of anxiety or depression and access to treatment services for opioid use disorder. Okay, great. So pretty complete set of data, and it sounds like they controlled for a lot of the confounders that we usually consider in these types of trials looking at individuals with opioid use disorder. Yeah, I think it was a very impressive data set. I should say that these are all coordinated and it really gives them um, a good picture of what's going on in their system. Great. So what were their primary outcomes? So the primary outcome they looked at here was very simply all-cause mortality in the 12 months after their non-fatal opioid overdose. And one of their key secondary outcomes was opioid-related mortality over the same time. So again, I mentioned that the analyses involved were a little bit complex at times, but the takeaway here is that they used a time-to-event analysis using the exposure to the medication for the treatment of opioid use disorder as a time-varying exposure variable over that time. Okay. What were the main findings of the study? So... This is a massive data set, again, a pretty impressive one. They included over 17,000 patients who met their inclusion criteria. So in that time, over 17,000 people had a touch point with the healthcare system for a non-fatal opioid overdose, which is already, I think, pretty dramatic. 62% of those patients were male, and 69% of them were younger than the age of 45 years old. Interestingly, uh, 26% of the patients only had received some form of prescription for a medication for the treatment of opioid use disorder prescribed before this index event. So a pretty, well, like a very young group of patients that were experiencing overdose and really not a lot of individuals who'd been offered treatment in the past. Yeah. And to me, I mean, this knowing the patients that you and I see, this is not particularly surprising to me. Nope, not at all. But again, highlights the gap in care and the huge opportunity to intervene and you know potentially generate a huge benefit and change in outcomes. So yeah, great. So what were the main findings of the study? So the takeaway here, they report a lot of numbers, but the takeaways are that in the first 12 months after their index overdose, so after they had an identified non-fatal overdose, only 30% of patients received some form of medication to treat opioid use disorder. 8% of them received methadone, 13% received a prescription buprenorphine, only 4% on extended release naltrexone, and 5% had a prescription for more than one of these medications. The patients who did receive one of these medications were more likely to be younger than 45 years old, were more likely to have had a diagnosis of anxiety or depression, and were also more likely to have gone through detox at some point in the past 12 months. 
Okay. And what happened with overdose mortality? So over the 12-month follow-up here, 807 patients died of any cause, so 4.7 deaths per 100 patient years, and 368 of those died of an overdose. All-cause mortality for somebody who were receiving no medication for the treatment of opioid use disorder was 4.9%, but with methadone, that decreased 2.5%. With buprenorphine, it was decreased to 3%. And with naltrexone, it was decreased to only 4.7%. So if you look at hazard ratios there to, to kind of demonstrate this effect, the adjusted hazard ratio for methadone was 0.47, while for buprenorphine, it was 0.63. Now for extended release naltrexone, the adjusted hazard ratio was 1.44, which was non-significant and had very wide confidence intervals. But this just highlights there was not very many patients who were actually on naltrexone, so the numbers were quite low. Right. And while we have access to methadone and buprenorphine, naloxone, or, or suboxone here, we don't yet have Vivitrol in Canada or that extended release naltrexone. Yeah, it's prohibitively difficult to access here so far. But they did a lot of sub-analyses here, and there's a lot of their numbers reported. The only one that I'll point out really is, well, two things, is that unfortunately, in the 12 months after their overdose, 34%, so still a third of these patients received one or more prescriptions for opioids, and, and just less than a third received a prescription, at least one prescription for benzodiazepines. So not a shining endorsement of us as physicians, I think. No, it's pretty discouraging. I mean, we see that not only are we missing opportunities to provide evidence-based treatment to a lot of people, we're potentially piling on extra harm by providing repeat prescriptions for medications that we know are going to increase their risk of overdose. Yeah. Okay. Any other points or observations that you want to make about the study? I mean, I think that the numbers really speak for themselves, but Again, I'll just highlight how important of a question this is to study. And again, just the fact that only 30% of people were receiving appropriate evidence-based medical care for opioid use disorder after experiencing one of these overdoses is really, I think, a call to action for us that we can do more to help treat this potentially fatal disease. So in summary, are there any limitations? Yeah, I think there are, and I think that they're important to keep in mind. As in any retrospective cohort study, there's lots of opportunity for bias here. There's opportunity for selection bias. They do perform multivariable regression, but there's almost certainly some level of residual bias. So that's just part and parcel with doing this kind of study. I think that classification and misclassification is always another issue and another potential source of bias with these database analyses. But really, going back to the numbers, they're so compelling and really intuitive that I really do believe them. I guess the final question here would be that this is all a Massachusetts cohort, and we know that Massachusetts has been disproportionately affected by the opioid crisis. So the generalizability outside of Massachusetts is unknown, but really for the purposes of their population, I think they make a pretty strong case. Absolutely. And I think in both of our experiences, there's still a lot of opportunity and significant gaps in delivering evidence-based treatment to patients who need it. So I, I find that still does ring true, even though it's you know not specifically our population. So summarize for us this study. So I think the summary is quite straightforward. We are not doing a good enough job at providing medications for people who present to us with non-fatal overdose and opioid agonist therapy save lives. The number needed to treat for this particular study is dramatic. It's between 40 and 50 for patients who are under the age of 45 years old. So this is as good or better than most interventions that we use in medicine for reduction in all-cause mortality. And these are young people that we're talking about. 
Yeah, absolutely. We don't have a lot of other interventions or medications for other diseases that we treat every day that come even close to OAT for people who've experienced overdose. Perfect. So I'll say it again. This paper to me is a call to action for all of us who work on inpatient wards and who have exposure to these patients. Uh, this goes beyond the realm of an addiction physician. This is something that in this day and age, we all need to have in our arsenal. A hundred percent. This is all of our responsibility and big push to try to expand comfort and capacity for general internists to provide this type of treatment because it's something we can all do. Absolutely. So thanks again for coming on the show today to present these articles. Kate, we're moving on now to our favorite part of the show. Uh, this is the good stuff segment. So tell us what you're reading about. So I am excited for this. So my good thing is the Crackdown podcast. So this podcast was just recently launched and you can get their first episode online or wherever you get your podcasts from. So again, it's Crackdown. And again, keeping with our theme, what this podcast aims to do is cover the drug war and the overdose crisis covered by people who use drugs essentially as war correspondents. So what you'll hear in the first episode are a number of individuals who have experienced firsthand the overdose crisis as they discuss their experiences, their frustrations, and emphasize and advocate for the need for safe drug supply, but also less stigma, less barriers to care. And at certain parts in the podcast, they do describe their experiences interacting with the healthcare system. So I found this podcast to be extremely powerful, moving, uncomfortable at times, but essential listening, I think, for all people, but especially those of us who work in healthcare and who care for people who use drugs, which is all of us. I'm really happy you brought this forward because I've also listened to this podcast. It's very well done, very high quality, and it really does, as you say, it gives you the perspective of people who are living on the front lines with this opioid crisis. And it really is powerful, like you said, and I look forward to hearing more of their episodes. Yeah, me too. And I mean, it's been so far very well received. It's been covered by a lot of different media outlets. It got to number three on iTunes in Canada. So high production value, extremely thoughtful and like I said, essential listening. It's something that I'll be listening to and discussing with my you know, residents and fellows and people that I work with on the medical teaching unit, because I think it's really important that we all have a listen. So the article that I chose today is also dovetails with our theme of addiction. And this really kind of speaks to the journal article that I presented today. So I was reading a article on the NPR website entitled, For One Rural Community, Fighting Addiction Started with Recruiting the Right Doctor. And it's a really well-written narrative of a small community in Wisconsin talking about their experiences and, and how badly they've been afflicted by the opioid crisis. And not just the opioids, but they speak about addictions in general. They talk about their experiences and they also talk about their lack of access to care and really how difficult it is to find providers who are comfortable and willing to treat these patients with things like buprenorphine, with evidence-based care. So this community actually took it on themselves to secure a grant to actually recruit a physician who's 
also included in the article and has really done a tremendous job of turning things around in their community. But it really underscores the fact that rural places in general in the US, but also in Canada, are very underserviced when it comes to treating patients with addictions. And I think that it really, again, should motivate all of us to go out and learn how to prescribe these medications and learn how to save lives. Absolutely. That's a very interesting story and interesting that they kind of had to go to those lengths and did go to those lengths to make sure that they had a provider who could prescribe, again, highly evidence-based medications to treat an increasingly common and devastating crisis to our healthcare system. Yeah, it is commendable, but it's disappointing that they had to take it on themselves. Okay, so that concludes our addiction theme episode today, Kate. So thanks again so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed the discussion. I think these are two very topical articles that really do touch on a broad audience. And I really enjoyed it. Me too. Thanks so much for having me. Fantastic. Okay, take care. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Roundstable Podcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation, Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the Roundstable, Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in.